0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: The Economist.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Aura Ogunbeyi.
1: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
2: In one of the most sexist countries in Africa, and probably the world, women are finding a new outlet to vent about injustice, slam poetry. The words of the poets, or les slamos as they're called, are deliberately vulgar, provocative and cathartic.
1: And if you look through the sporting record, there are plenty of people who have managed to win games, or league titles, or Olympic medals in more than one sport. But these multi-talented athletes are getting more and more rare. We ask why.
2: First up though… Less than a decade ago, the mood in China's markets was optimistic. The economy was growing at over 6% a year, foreign investors were piling in, and a cohort of wealthy business people were emerging, living the Chinese dream.
3: Um, And you look at Hong Kong, you look at the Hang Seng, you look at the mainland China indexes, uh, they've hit multi-year lows.
2: But this year, investors in Chinese stocks have been on a hair-raising ride. Markets in China and Hong Kong shed $1.5 trillion in January alone, even as America's S&P 500 index reached record highs.
4: Well, the Chinese regulators as well as other authorities are now stepping up their efforts to try to restore confidence in the market.
2: Meanwhile, Chinese markets on a tear today. The FXI and MCHI each having their best day since January of last year. The KWEB the best day since July. Since then... Prices recovered a little as state firms began buying stocks. But there is no mistaking the dismal bigger picture. So has Xi Jinping lost control of the markets?
4: Investors both at home and abroad once saw China's government as a dependable steward of the economy.
2: Rachana Shambhog is The Economist's business affairs editor.
4: But now that trust has seeped away with severe consequences for China's growth prospects. And it's hard to see that fundamental problem being tackled. Rajna, what's gone wrong here? Or even less than a decade ago, investors were really excited about tapping into China's extraordinary growth story. The hope was that although China was not politically free, the politics could be separate from the markets and people and investors could continue to get rich. But what's happened since then is that policymaking in China has become a lot more skittish. There was a tech crackdown that started in 2020. The exit from zero Covid was mismanaged and badly hurt confidence. China's three years into a property crisis, which again has hurt confidence. It's sapped savings. It's dragged the economy into deflation. The government wants to avoid fiscal handouts, and it wants to ensure that high-quality sectors continue growing at the expense of other parts of the economy. But it's not so easy to steer the economy. Even profits in those desired sectors fell last year, and China hasn't had the stimulus that it needs to be growing at a fast pace again.
2: So, some of this is down to policymaking, but what else is
4: causing the rot? The other thing that we're seeing is that foreign investors have really fallen out of love with China. One problem is geopolitics, so they worry that if China's relationship with America gets worse, say after America's presidential election, then that could jeopardize their investments on the mainland. But the policymaking has also led them to doubt that they'll make big returns on their investments. They've been net sellers of mainland stocks for months now. Hong Kong has suffered as well. At one time, investors were really keen to gain access to Chinese stocks. Now they're looking elsewhere, trying to build up alternatives. So asset managers are selling equity indices, for example, that exclude China. Investors are eyeing up India, which has a really large population. They're eyeing up Japan, which has cutting edge technology and the hope is that perhaps together, these look a little China-like. And how about domestically? Where's Chinese money flowing? So the other kind of unappreciated part of this story is what's happening to the sentiment of investors on the mainland. And our colleagues have been writing about China's well-to-do and really detailing how this cohort of people as well have really lost faith in China's policymakers. They experienced three decades of extraordinary growth. They were encouraged by China's leadership to go out and get rich. And they've experienced a painful reversal in their fortunes in recent years. So their property investments are sinking their financial investments are doing badly. Surveys suggest that many white collar workers received pay cuts last year as well. And all of this is sort of translating into outflows from Chinese stocks. Those people who can, uh, the evidence suggests moving their capital out of China, but that's quite hard to do because China's got capital controls. So those people who can't move their money out of the country are moving into safer money market funds or fleeing into funds that track foreign stocks. Now,
2: what does all this stock market instability mean for the economy more broadly?
4: Well, I think the consequence already is a hit to China's growth prospects. So stay with China's wealthy, stay with the well-to-do. They're experiencing a big shock to their wealth, which means that they might spend less. It will weigh on their investment decisions. That said, in time, they might have little choice but to put their money back into the stock market because there aren't many other options for where they can park their wealth. But foreigners, by contrast, will be harder to tempt back. They have other options and they're exploring them. And that's going to hurt Chinese companies. Research suggests that about a decade ago when foreign investors started coming To the mainland and were excited about investing in the mainland, that translated into more capital spending by Chinese firms, more investment in research and development. And the converse, you would think, is that as foreign investors leave, then Chinese firms are doing less of those desirable activities. And that means less innovation in China and perhaps slower growth as well.
2: How is Xi Jinping trying to counter all this?
4: So the start to the year has not been particularly good for Chinese stocks. And as prices fell, uh, there were reports that Xi Jinping himself was due to be briefed on what was happening in the markets. You know, it's a very sort of public signal of how investors think of the Chinese government and of their faith in the Chinese government. What we saw was the head of China's securities regulator was sacked, something that we've seen in previous stock market downturns that the regulator gets the boot. The government has curbed short selling. It's ordered state-owned asset managers to buy stocks and to prop them up. But none of this really tackles what we think is the root of the problem. So it might prop up stock prices for a time, but it shows China's mistrust of markets, which again sort of reminds investors of the problems of investing in China. We're not seeing much fiscal handouts being made And if anything, it seems like the government is making things worse. So it's cracking down on criticism of the economy. It's becoming more suspicious of foreign businesses. It's making it harder for foreign investors to gain access to the data that they need in order to be able to invest in the country. So far from sort of dealing with what's at the root of the problem, it's actually making the environment for investors worse. Rachna, why haven't they changed course? I think the real obstacle to change here, Ore, is that it's clear that Xi Jinping believes that he and the Communist Party must be in total control. And he wants to dictate where growth in China comes from. I think regaining investors' trust would mean rethinking the state's role in the economy. And there's little sign of that happening. There's little sign that Mr. Xi will soften his grip. And so where investors once thought that China's politics could be kept separate from their ability to make money... They're now learning that you can't escape politics, and I think what that translates into is that they will continue to be more cautious when they think about investing in China.
2: Ratchna, thank you so much for your time.
4: Thanks for having me, Ori.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., Copyright 2024.
5: Cette histoire, cette histoire, je ne l'ai racontée à personne, même pas à mon ombre. Ce traumatisme, je l'ai caché au fond des abîmes de ma déchéance.
6: This is Epiphany Nodjukua Johnrang, known as Fanny's Door on stage. She's a slamper in Jemena, the capital of Chad. Kinley Salmon is The
2: Economist's Africa
6: correspondent. And she's speaking here about the abuse that countless women get from men. As a group of men sips so sodas in the audience, she tells all men who abuse women... If one day life allows me, with my vagina, I will piss on your face. I later sat down with her in Indiumina to ask her about her slam poetry. She told me her poetry is sometimes very, very vulgar. She said, know, there are no taboos for me and we must just say things as they are. Slam Poetry comes originally from Chicago back in the 1980s, but it's now conquering really and becoming very popular in Francophone Africa. Slammers typically recite their rhymes competitively in front of lively and demanding audiences. And for young people, it's a way often to speak truths that might normally be silenced. And for women like Epiphany, it's also liberating. And that's particularly so in a country like Chad, a conservative Muslim country in Central Africa. Such blunt and coarse language is pretty unusual for young women in a country like Chad. Chad is not an easy place to be a woman. A survey in 2015 found that nearly one in three Chadian women had experienced physical or sexual violence from a partner. And Chad's a country where a quarter of girls get married before they turn 15 years old. In this context, this kind of language is, is extremely unusual. But for Epiphany, she was very moved by hearing other female Slam poets known as Slamus when she went to a show herself way back in 2014. She tells me as she listened, she felt it was as if I was one of them. But despite all these challenges for Slam poets and especially for female Slam poets, In Jemina, the capital of Chad, has become something of a slam poetry hub for Africa. Back in 2018, the city hosted the first ever African Cup of Slam poetry that had entrants from 20 different countries. And Slam's surprising strength in this unlikely place owes much to a man called Didier Lalai. He's known on stage as Crocmoor. And one of his acts back in 2013 made slam popular almost overnight. In that hit poem, he rails against European ignorance of
0: Africa. He
6: rhymes that they think that our fathers are all polygamists, that our grandfathers are cannibals. He says that they have Treblinka, the Gestapo and the Nazis, but they adore the genocide of the Tutsis and Hutus. Back in 2013, he founded an annual festival called Jam Son Flam, on Slam. And in a Chadian twist, Slam is usually set to music as well. So Slam festivals feel something like literary rap concerts.
0: The strong feminist commentary
6: wasn't really there from the beginning. But in 2016, Epiphany signed up for Cockmore's festival. She was one of the very first women to do so, but she says herself she wasn't that radical. But that all changed in 2020, when a close friend of hers in Togo simply stopped replying to her messages, and eventually she found out why. She She told me that her friend had been kidnapped, raped, and then killed. The police have never found the perpetrator. She said that was a huge turning point in her life and that it made her rage that so many women suffer this way and nothing is done. And after that, her poetry became much more feminist, much more averted, and in many cases, much more blunt. Epiphany was one of the first of these very overt feminist poets, but she's not the only one. But she's also taken another step, which is to sort of link up with feminist activists in the country. Feminist poets have certainly tested the limits of what conservative Chadians will stomach. Epiphany tells me she gets death threats on social media, and she recounts being followed in the streets of Indermina by a group of men in a car as she headed home.
5: (laughs) ——
6: And the pretty paranoid government, too, gets nervous about what slam poets and and other artists get up to in their free expression. Sometimes they try to co-opt slam poets, you know, inviting them to perform at official events, but then restricting what they can say. And back in October 2022, the regime delayed elections and brutally cracked down on the resulting protests that killed at least 128 people. And plenty of outspoken artists were also targeted. And Crockmore felt that he really had no choice but to leave Chad. He, he told me that he simply couldn't be in Chad and and still be able to express himself, and he's now based out of the Netherlands. Well, Epiphany is not left, but with elections finally due in Chad this coming October, there are worries about a a further crackdown on free expression. Yet despite all of this, it's also true that Chadian Slam really does live on. That festival of Injams on flam on Slam was back in good style in November. And Epiphany and and plenty of other groups run workshops to try to support the next generation of, of Slam poets. When I was in Chad, I went along to one of those workshops, and in particular to the performance at the end of it, where a dozen or so teenage Chadians gathered to compete. Before the performances, I watched them prepare, made them looked terribly nervous, but when they got onto the stage and the music struck up, suddenly jaws jutted out and voices really rang out. One young slammer evoked the words of Julius Caesar to decry Chadian and African politics. I came, I saw, I lived, I was disappointed. Other young female slammers there continued the long tradition of, of shattering taboos. One spoke of the scourge of a lack of education for women. She said, "STDs spread unchecked. No education, therefore, no protection." And from the audience, Epiphany sat there, watching on, very, very proudly.
3: In the 1990s, Dion Sanders did something rare. He simultaneously played American football for the Atlanta Falcons and baseball for the Atlanta Braves.
0: The, the plate gets on by, Sanders flies
1: over, and now he is safe at home!
3: He even attempted to play for both on the same day, although the spoil sport Braves coach uh, put an end to that dream. Bill Ridgers is The Economist's Asia digital editor. But Mr. Sanders is now becoming already something of an anachronism. The chances of finding a modern-day equivalent of somebody who can play more than one professional sport simultaneously has more or less faded. Why, why
1: is that, though? Why isn't there a new Deion Sanders every season?
3: I think the simple answer is that training to become a professional athlete nowadays is becoming ever more technical. Ever The details that are needed to succeed are becoming more intricate every single year. And so the only way really to conquer two different sports is to forsake one sport for another. So athletes now, rather than doubling up, have to choose between sports. There was a case just last month, a rugby player called Lewis rees Sammet, a 22-year-old Welshman who was the darling of his sport, really, and he announced he was quitting rugby to try out for American football. It can't be the
1: case that nobody, though, is trying to do two sports at once, that that Dion Sanders special.
3: It is certainly very rare now. I mean, there have been cases recently of cricketers, for example, have tried their luck at professional baseball, but none of the cricketers have, while they've proved somewhat adept at the sport, as you might imagine, none of them have succeeded, and then... In 2019, there was the case of Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray grew up being an exceptional baseball player and also American football quarterback. And in 2019, he was drafted for the Oakland A's Major League Baseball team. But in the end, he had to make a choice because the Arizona Cardinals also wanted him as a quarterback. And it was just impossible for him to flourish in both simultaneously. That's not to say that some athletics associations haven't tried to poach sports people from one sport to compete in another.
1: Even though, as you say, sports are very uh, professionalised, people who do it at the professional
3: level have been doing it for years. That works, does it? It can do. So I think the proviso is that the technical adjustment from one sport to another must be low. So there's a, a good example. In the early 2000s, Australia began a search for women to represent it in the skeleton. If you've never seen the skeleton, it's a a frankly insane sport where athletes head down an ice track at 70 miles an hour head first on what seems to be to be nothing more than than a tea tray. But anyhow, rather than recruiting people from a sort of similar sport, similar sort of sledding sports, actually they just went out and found the fastest sprinters from other sports around Australia and recruited them. And in fact, it worked because they found a competitive surf lifesaver, of all things, named Michelle Steele, who was exceptionally quick, but had never tried the skeleton before. But within just a few runs, she was beating more experienced sledders. And in fact, she made it all the way to the Olympics. Um, Competitive surf lifesaver. Help me understand this. It's swimming out to sea, swimming back with something and sprinting very fast down a beach. And she was very good at the sprinting along the beach part of it. But as far as the now legend of Dion Sanders, we,
1: we shouldn't expect any more of those.
3: I mean, it's pretty unlikely if for the foreseeable future. But I have a sort of slight hunch that there is one sporting superstar in the world now that has a sort of glimmer of a hope of doing it. As I said before, what you need to find is somebody who excels in the sort of smallest possible technical niche. And so the England captain at football is Harry Kane, who also plays for Bayern Munich.
0: And Kane is going to go for it as he beats it. Oh, I don't believe
3: that. He's exceptionally good at kicking a ball in between two posts. He's also an NFL obsessive He's already said that his dream is to one day become a kicker in the NFL. And you wouldn't bet against him, actually, becoming the next Deion Sanders and playing both sports at a very high level.
1: There you go, Mr. Kane. The Economist is
3: rooting for you. Uh,
1: Bill, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Have I mentioned recently that this month you can sign up to Economist Podcasts Plus for half price? Have I reminded you just how much that couple of bucks a month gets you? The weekly deep dive shows on business in China and tech and American politics, the limited series, the Kickback Weekend edition of this show, the bragging rights. Honestly, it's so good a deal I'm inclined to keep it to myself. And yet the bosses repeatedly insist that I tell you. So. Search for Economist Podcasts. Get in here while it's cheap. And see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...